Hello, welcome to the Public Procurement Podcast for a special one-off uh, episode about the general election 2019. In this podcast, I've got with myself uh, my dear friend, Professor Albert sanchez Grails from the University of Bristol, and we're going to be talking and looking at the manifestos for the three main parties, um, the Conservatives, Labour and the Lib Dems. Hello, Albert. Hi, Pedro. How are you doing? I'm fine. And you? I'm okay. Just a bit <laughs> surprised by these manifestos, so plenty to discuss. Yes. Um, we're going to organize our talk around topics. So instead of going manifesto by manifesto, we're going to look at the topics and then we're going to be looking at uh, what are the, the, the proposals from the parties. So the three topics we have selected for this podcast are first and foremost, the bi-British approach or industrial policy. Then the second one is going to be outsourcing and NHS and also a little bit on late payments. And then finally, sustainable procurement. So I think we're going to take around an hour to do this. So let's hope that we can stick to more or less to that time and also to provide some insight and guidance on what is in these manifestos. Albert? Yep. Okay. So let's start with the first one. By British industrial policy. Um, what, what is your take um, on this? Well, I think it's, it's surprising, uh, for instance, that the Conservative proposals are outside the manifesto, but they've been revealed uh, by Johnson more recently. But uh, they, they are, to me, both uh, very open-ended and, and almost impossible, uh, whether under the WTO rules or the EU rules. Uh, and this is something that you and I have been writing about and banging our heads about for a while. Um, I, I just don't understand what they mean by, by British. Um, particularly because, you know, it's been clear in the no deal preparations that there's such an amount of things that are being bought through very complicated supply chains that comes from abroad, mainly from the EU. So the, the question would be, who's going to sell, even if the public sector is willing to buy British? So that's, that, that's my, my first reaction to it. It's, buy, buy from whom? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, does it make much sense? Bearing in mind the interconnectedness of the supply chains that most of the things that you could consider to be British, it just means that they've passed through, let's say, a British factory at one end of the supply chain, not necessarily the whole of it. So I don't really see how that this is going to be possible. And as you said correctly as well, within the context of EU rules and also WTO or GPA rules, let's not forget that there is already on the table uh, a schedule of commitments from the from the UK government to uh, exceed the GPA as soon as we are out of the EU. So it means that they would go back and change what they've already committed, because what they're proposing here, and Labour to a certain extent as well, is to tilt the playing fields in terms of procurement contracts in favour of local in the sense of national suppliers. Yeah, I fully agree with you. I mean, I think maybe in the Labour uh, manifesto, there are some proposals that, that are less openly about buying British, but they, they try to, to twin it with other goals, uh, mainly like green procurement in, in terms of steel, and, and we'll, we'll come back to that later. 
but I think in in general, both manifestos are uh, worrying to me because they are sort of very clear indications of a, of a broader trend towards going back to protectionism and and trying to use procurement as, a, as an industrial policy tool. Uh, if if you want, the, the main difference is that the the conservative manifesto seems to want to do that to support new industries and and mainly. Um, data related or, or digital technologies startups, whereas the conservatives want to go back to more basic public infrastructure, um, both in, in transportation, but also in, in this proposal to have this free um, broadband for everybody. But I think that's, that's two different things. Well, one thing is to say uh, public services should be improved or public procurement should, should foster innovation. And I think that's something we can all get behind. But what's bizarre is to, to twin it uh, to, to just buying local or buying British, because as I said, you know, the, 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 the industry has changed and, and you were also mentioning that supply chains are really complicated and even getting into the detail of what, what actually is being produced uh, in the UK and what's not, it's, it's going to just be a waste of resource in, in my view. And it's also going to just favor an industry of, of fronts. And, and we have seen that in, in other areas like outsourcing. Mm -hmm. We'll just have very big face large companies saying oh we are the ones selling British but actually nobody's going to care where things are produced three or four steps down the, the supply chain yeah I agree so with you in, in, in addition to what you've said there's another uh, side to this coin which is once you go down this route of being protectionist you immediately kick in reactions from your trading partners and let's not forget as well that UK companies, especially the larger ones, have been very successful at attracting business um, in terms of public contracts and public procurement outside the UK, be it inside the context of the EU or also the GPA. So overall, this may actually be a net loss because there's not much money being leaked, at least at uh, main contractor level, directly to foreign companies in the UK. What is happening is that the UK companies that are winning business out there are going to be immediately cut off from access to those markets. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. And um, I think the, the other issue is uh, with a policy on paper that is quite ineffectual because they, they could uh, go down the, the, the route, particularly conservatives, of having a Buy British um, Act that then doesn't apply to whatever is covered by international treaties, which is mm -hmm. which is the approach we've seen in the U.S. or other places. So that's that's a, the, the the ultimate populism of trying to tell the public they have actually enacted the by British uh, requirement that then doesn't really apply, or or the other issue like they try to do with with social value uh, in the consultation from last summer is say well this only applies to central governments, well, but it doesn't apply to to devolved administrations or local authorities, which in the end are the ones that that could have maybe more closeness to, to more local value chains, particularly for services. So, so the, the, the whole thing seems to me, uh, going back to debates that I, I, I have thought and sort of wished were thing of the, of the 90s, but yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit weird. Yeah, the, there's a clear reversal of the trend to make procurement more efficient and effective as a tool to buy something and instead try to achieve other aims via procurement. And that's something that I've I've written about a couple of years ago with our former colleague, uh, Griff Skovgard uh, Ulika, uh, where it was clear that already in the 2014 directives, there was a degree and an attempt to use procurement as a compliance tool. And 
I have the impression that this bi-British uh, approach or industrial policy, uh, both in the guise of the, 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 the Conservatives and also Labour, will lead to more compliance, external compliance factors being built into procurement. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think but, but that, that's a bit reflective of, of the problem with formulating a procurement policy, because in the end, it's easier to say how you will be buying things in a way that gives you political points, like we're going to be buying um, British, or we're going to be buying green, or we're going to be buying innovation, rather than saying what is it actually you're going to be buying. Um, and, and that's something that, that, to me, cuts across all of the three manifestos. I, I, don't, I don't see lots of clear prioritization of public expenditure beyond specific issues such as we're going to, in the case of labor, buy the specific infrastructures or hire more people. But, but that's going to be, even if it's, it's a large volume of money, that's not going to be the bulk of the procurement. The bulk of the procurement is about um, what sort of local services are being provided such as waste collection and, and other things uh, that usually don't carry many political points or um, loads of things that are purely internal to the, to the public ser service. And, and that's, that's something I also uh, think has been forgotten. It's not very clear, for instance, uh, how is the, the civil service going to be scaled up to the, the um, volume of insourcing um, that, that we're going to discuss later. And, and, and you know, that, that's what what I find problematic of using procurement as an electioneering tool, that it's it's always about the process, but it's never about the, yeah. the goals that, that we want to achieve. So uh, I think that this is um, a worrisome and a worrying as well development for procurement here in the UK. And it surely looks like it is moving in the opposite direction of what has been the policy if not necessarily explicitly in, inside the UK, but certainly in negotiation settings uh, in the context of the EU, for example, the directives that we have now, and also the GPA, where the UK championed and fostered an approach that was pro-efficiency and pro-competition. And it seems that we are rolling back internally in terms of uh, trying to achieve those those objectives and, and going more down a, a protectionist or almost a mercantilistic approach to public procurement. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I mean, the, the, the other thing is, it's very hard to estimate the, the, the cost and the impact of, of these policies if they are ever um, implemented, mm -hmm. um, particularly because it's very so, so that's the other issue that makes them so interesting for electioneering. Well, basically, these are free promises at the time of making them mm -hmm. um, compared to, to the more concrete proposals in, in the Labour Manifesto, for instance, of, of you know, nationalizing part of BT or, yeah, or, yeah. or the network rail. That's, that's clearly something you can cost. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's, it's a sort of mercantilistic um, approach, but it's also an extremely populistic approach. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's the bit that, that worries me more. Well, I'm, I'm worried as well, and um, I don't think that if either of these policies gets enacted in full, and that's a big if, of course, I, I don't mm. think that procurement will be actually better off at the end of this. I think we're going to be on with uh, procurement processes and procedures and logic, system logic, so to speak, that are going to be more complex and more difficult to act upon than what we have today. And if you complain rightly but, so to a certain extent, but, that um, procurement is already too complex. Adding stuff like this on top is just going to make it worse. 
But that's a very interesting point. I mean, I don't know what you make of it, but uh, the Conservative Manifesto says openly we want to make startups to get public contracts. Mm-hmm. The Labour Manifesto says we want to give uh, women-owned and BAME businesses access to public contracts. Mm-hmm. Do you think, is, is it now inaccessible? So, so if you look at it from a perspective of an SME or, or a startup, do you think procurement contracts are inaccessible? And if so, what would need to be changed? Because mm-hmm. I haven't seen any of that in in the manifestos, but what's your take on that? Um, my take is simplification is never, um, it's a work that is never done, so it can always be uh, improved upon. Um, I would say that probably the amount of direct expenditure with SMEs or uh, with, com- with, well, SMEs in general is in line with what we'd expect bearing in mind the profile of expenditure that is uh, assumed by by the public sector. As for startups, yes, it is a little bit more difficult specifically for them, um, mostly for the reasons that they don't have track record. And one of the things that tends to uh, put them at a disadvantage um, in, in, in a moment that presenting bits, it's exactly that, that lack of track record. Because as the old adage or saying goes, no one was ever fired from buying IBM. Whereas if you buy from a startup and then that goes goes south, then it's your reputation as the key decision maker inside the organization that is going to be affected. So you have an inbuilt incentive not to award contracts to startups. So that is something that could be worked upon. Um, as for uh, women-owned uh, uh, businesses and, uh, and minority-owned businesses, I don't have enough data or information about it, but I always remind me remind myself of the comments uh, that I've heard from colleagues where uh, from countries where these kind of policies exist and are enacted on a day-to-day basis, like South America, sorry, um, South Africa, Brazil, uh, the U.S. to a certain extent, and I have not seen any positive uh, analysis saying that this is working and it's working as it is intended. It usually generates unintended consequences like, for example, an over-reliance in in consultants that uh, prepare the bids and prepare the tenders to to make them more amenable or even the the use of only front uh, businesses uh, or, or, or shell companies in a sense to try and tackle officially that or tick that box without in reality leading to benefits for those constituencies. Yeah, I think I, I would very much agree with that. I mean, in, in, in terms of, for instance, the um, simplification and, and try to concentrate specifically on startups, mm-hmm. I think the, the UK government has actually been doing lots in terms of the cloud computing mm-hmm. uh, dynamic purchasing system that is run by the government digital yes. service. And, and, and that's also a bit of a, of a mixed experience because on the one hand, they, they've reduced lots of the requirements, like, like for instance, track record, you know, to try to mm-hmm. to get very young startups into the dynamic purchasing system. But then at the same time, they came up with a system where there are 3,500 startups in and, mm-hmm. and about I think it's about 17% of them get any business. Um, the other ones are just enrolled, but, but never successful. So, but, but that's, for instance, something that, that would be very valuable. Mm-hmm. And and somebody should be looking at that experience in detail and learn lessons so that they can be both improved in, in that system, but also rolled out across government. I mean, I, I would like to see sometime any manifesto saying we're going to actually commission a task force mm-hmm. to look at what we're doing well, what we're not doing so well, and then 
try to come up with a renewed procurement policy. I mean, this is something you and I have been yes. discussing for a long time in, in, in the context of the transposition of the directives. But there, as much as there is this sort of will to renew the procurement rules, to, to, to you know, introduce all of these other requirements and, and change practice, nobody seems to be putting a lot of thought into how to do this seriously. I mean, I'm, I'm aware there was some sort of uh, governmental roadshow over the summer trying to talk to some practitioners and academics, but that yeah. seems to have gone nowhere of the election. But but that's that's what I find missing. You know, we, we never sit down to learn about what's happened and, and try to improve. And and that's also linked to outsourcing, and we'll come back to that later. So, I don't know, uh, maybe this is just procurement academic, you know, complaining that my priorities were not in the manifestos, but yeah. somebody should be uh, doing some serious research about what's going on. Well, I agree with you. It's not, um, it's not surprising, but I would say that um, regarding the DPS um, that is uh, that that you've referred to, the fact that companies there uh, only seventeen percent of the companies actually get any business, it's par for the course. So you lower the the barriers to entry, so the market the marketplace in terms of the supply side increases, but the demand side remains more or less unchanged. So for me, it's not surprising what it what it means is that actually everyone is competing in the same level and only the best win, um, which is different from having a system that makes it difficult for anyone to compete. So I prefer to have that problem than the opposite problem, which is a framework, which only three get in because they have a lot of experience and track record in large contracts and everyone else gets locked out of the con- locked out of, of that market for four years. So it means that for the other 83 companies, well, they need to get better. Uh, I mean, just... Just on the face of it, obvious. Obviously, there may be issues in terms of the, how the the work is then uh, allocated or designed for for competition. But first and foremost, that is not per se a, a bad sign. Um, as for your call for actual research in terms of what is working or not, I mean, you you know my uh, my my ideas on this. I mean, one of the things I think uh, that I I feel is missing here in the UK is some sort of what works center in public procurement. Um, That would allow, I mean, like you have in an NHS for with with uh, the care commission or the the, the nice guidelines, sorry, where you can actually see and assess properly what is working and it's not so that you can take what work and roll it out more widely in the public sector. But we don't do that. We just assume that whatever practice is then is is good enough. And something that worries me um, very often is to see that first practices being uh, bandied about as being best practices. No, usually what it meant is that the first time that something ran without any problems, it just ran without any problems. It doesn't mean that, means that it's the best way or the most optimal way to to do it. Um, so I yeah. agree with you in, in that area that we need to be a lot more careful in terms of what is actually being done in practice and use that experience to uh, to improve policy and obviously uh, in a future, uh, in, in a more distant future uh, practice as well. Yeah, fully agreed. Okay, let's move on to the second topic. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about outsourcing and the NHS. Uh, let me check the, the manifestos. So we've got the Tories saying that they are going to continue to repair the damage done by Labour's disastrous PFI deals. 
labor being that set against any oh, pretty much any, any any sort of outsourcing especially of the um, the larger kind and on the lip dams i don't think you have anything about it no i don't think so at least in the manifesto itself so what is your take in terms of the um, the views of especially the, the the labor and and conservatives manifestos regarding outsourcing especially in the nhs well i think um this is an area where I'm actually researching with with a colleague at Bristol for a while, um, and we, we're trying to um, just write a book about how being pegged to one system is not necessarily the solution. I mean, I think that there is a big problem in treating outsourcing as as, as a one single category, um, and and taking either the approach that things have to be outsourced or that things must not be outsourced, and and from that perspective, the the, the, the way that the, the labor manifesto frames it, which is in terms of presumptions, presumption that something should be outsourced, a presumption that should not be outsourced, I think it's not the right way to go. Um, simply because uh, mostly when we're talking about outsourcing, I, I think at least we can distinguish two big things. One is very simple uh, services that, that have low, low um, impact on the functioning of, of the public sector and then very complicated major operations. I think when most people talk about outsourcing, I don't think they're talking about uh, whether the, the sheets of a hospital are washed in-house or, or outsourced for cleaning. I, I think that's what they would consider outsourcing, which would be the, 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 the services that don't necessarily have a big operational impact, mm-hmm. provided they are managed well. Um, I think that basically what they're talking is about having private providers provide public services. Mm-hmm. And, and here, I think the issue is and you know that how difficult it is to, to define quality and, and to price quality. So the PFI fiasco, if you want, just comes to exemplify how difficult it is to pay for a service that you don't control and that you are unable to define. And and this has to do with the part privatization and now renationalization of the of the probation service, has to do with other services. I think here again, what we need is a much more uh, granular approach and insourcing could be terrifically horrible if the only thing we do is change public ownership but change nothing else. Mm-hmm. So basically, if we take back a service that has been outsourced and we take back all of the workers and we take back all of the management structures and all of the organizational processes, then what should tell us that things are going to improve? So, so again, what I think we need is to think about how we're going to upscale the ability of the public sector to step into areas where where private provision is not working and if we are going to upscale the public sector then why would not we not use that to regulate and audit and intervene in the provision of the service by the private provider if that is the right approach rather than just presuming that we should insource everything because in the end there were some reasons why things were outsourced mm-hmm. and and also there are some some difficulties in in just you know assuming that changing ownership changes everything so that's that's my, my first general reaction to the to the overall policy. Uh, how, I don't know how you see it. Well, there, there are areas where I think going or taking back to direct control from the public sector would not necessarily be bad. But as usual, the devil is in the details. And uh, as yourself, I'm worried about the ability of the public sector to actually take on that extra load and actually do it um, do it well or um, hopefully doing better than it's than it being 
being done today by uh, by the private sector. I mean, there is one example where that happened, and I think it was the East Coast main uh, main line, which was taken into public ownership uh, a few years ago, and it was being uh, managed better than uh, in than previously uh, when it was um, uh, con- uh, conceded out in a concession, and uh, afterwards as well. So. Uh, there are sectors and, and, and moments where that, that may work quite well, but I don't think that we should be dogmatic uh, about it so that all the outsourcing is good or all the outsourcing is bad. Um, now, you've mentioned something important here, which is the skills of the people that are involved in, in procurement or have to be involved in, in procurement and in the delivery of those services, but also something that is lacking today. If you think about the PFI contracts, if you think about large outsourcing contracts, one of the main failures has been contract management. Mm-hmm. And yep. you don't need to insource anything uh, to solve a contract management problem. What you need to is actually put the resources that contract management requires so that you can deliver the outcome that was contracted. And that has been, for a long time, a clear problem in the, in, in the way that the UK uh, approaches its procurement, which is, um, and it has been as, as far as I know, for, uh, since I've, I, I've, I've been around in the, in the mid-2000s, it is an approach to make it as cheap as possible, not, not, only, the deliver, not only the actually deliverable uh, and the process, but also the management of that process and also the management of the contract. And that is a recipe for disaster. So if you think about, yes, probably the PFI contracts are not as good as uh, they were being uh, that we were being led to believe uh, 15 years ago. But that is a problem for for those uh, for those that proposed them and and said they were excellent and they were great and they were fantastic. So that is a problem for for our colleagues to 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 come clean about and, and accept their 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 responsibility. But there is a fundamental issue that I see here, which is one of contract management, which is irrespective of it being the public or the private sector, you still need to manage those contracts well. Now, let's assume that a, a, a given contract or an area is brought in-house again, so it's done by the public sector, there's going to be an inbuilt um, incentive to actually deliver it well because the reputational cost becomes more visible. So you can no longer say, well, this is a problem because it's a contractor who's crap. It's actually a, a problem uh, for us and for our reputation. We saw that to a certain extent here in Wales, when <clears throat> when Arriva lost the the, the 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 rail concession here in Wales, and uh, a new consortium um, was was put in place. <laughs> the Welsh government decided to call the new consortium Transport Transport for Wales, so. All the negativity and all the brand damage is now being done to transport for whales. So you're not going to be able to to survive much longer in terms of actually uh, claiming responsibility for the service, even though it's actually delivered by a private, and try to um, to, to to give it uh, try to try to to deliver it under a public or a unified brand, and at the same time uh, expect everything to be be working okay uh, and when things don't work i mean it's your brand that's going to be tarnished so at this moment in time because the rail services have not improved significantly uh, in fact they have uh, gone backwards 
it's the transfer for Wales, for Wales brands that is being uh, that is being damaged. So I don't know. I don't know. I think it will yeah. be much more obvious to go into contract management and improve contract management. But I think, yeah, I, I mean, I fully agree with you with the, the shortcomings in, in contract management and and more generally on just oversight. So that's linked mm-hmm. to the issue of late yeah. payments, right? So so why are we still seeing commitments to um, terminate late payments in procurement, yeah. in labor manifestos and in, and in conservative manifestos? Well, we're seeing it just because the UK is not taking seriously even EU law. There's a directive on this. It says public sector needs to pay in 30 days. Private contractors have to pay in 60 days. And, and it's just never been really seriously enforced because as you were saying basically the approach is once a contract is awarded then that's not a procurement issue anymore and and i think this is a culture change that that needs to um that needs to be pushed much harder but it's also linked to all of the other things that that particularly labor want to do with procurement so all the issues about taking seriously preventing human rights uh, violations in the supply chains all the issues about uh, modern slavery all of the issues about um buying more green and more sustainable. And all of these things just require much more procurement power yes. when you are designing the contracts, but also much more monitoring exposed. Uh, because again, this is something you and I have been saying for a long time, but having all of this based on self-declarations of companies that go unchecked <laughs> and based on contract performance clauses that nobody ever looks at, in the end results in, in, in having the contracts given to the best liar. And, yes. and there's actually evidence that this has been happening in the Karelian disaster and in other disasters where basically the approach is we have trimmed so much the public sector capacity human that then it's really extremely reliant on self-compliance or self-regulation by the public providers. And, 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 and that's just not happening. We, I, I don't think we're seeing it. I fully agree with you. I mean, uh, the hollowing out of the the public sector in terms of the skills and know-how and uh, the ability to understand how things are are happening is 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 very problematic, and we don't see anything in the manifestos to tackle that. Um, but I, I mentioned in this as well, especially on the, on the late payments. Um, what I think is happening here is that if you would actually act on that direct directive that the public sector needs to pay in 30 days and, and private in 60, that means that you need to actually tackle the problem and you need to, to assume the political cost of doing it, right? So it's much yeah. cheaper politically to say, we're going to attack, tackle this in procurement by putting it in a manifesto and then not finding a way to actually make it work within procurement than actually solving the problem at its source by <laughs> by yeah, approving uh, the right law, which is which is more connected with with tax and, and payments than anything that, else. Yeah, go on. Yeah, but that's the exact point. I mean, yeah, exactly. Those are the things that are in these manifestos about what we're going to be doing with procurement. Are things that the, the parties, I think, should just grow up and be more responsible and tell the public mm-hmm. what we actually need to do is we need to legislate for this because it's it's not only a problem that the private companies that have public contracts pay their subcontractors late. That's basically 14% of the economy. And it's less if you take into account that the private company is, is getting a chunk of it. So maybe it's 10% of the economy that is being paid late. The problem is the other 90% of the economy, if it's also being paid late. So you don't need to intervene through procurement, basically because it's not the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Same thing goes for other things that Labour said they want to do, like imposing pay ratio caps, like 20 to 1. 
in the public yeah. sector. Uh, I don't understand what they mean in the public sector, but th that was something that was touted more generally for public procurement. Again, if inequality in salaries is a big issue, and it is, and if the parties want to get serious about it, what they need to do is they need to legislate for it. Because, you know, what, what I find problematic with these manifestos, I mean, but more generally, with the use of procurement for these other goals, is that this is just the feel-good sector, right? So mm -hmm. the public sector wants to feel good that they, in their contracts, with their money, things are not happening. But then this is just, you know, <laughs> hiding the head under the sun and not looking at the rest of the economy, which is by and large what really is important. So, so loads of the things that they are putting us, we're going to use procurement to uh, ensure trade unions are respected. We're going to ensure that collective bargaining is and ensure that there's a responsibility for a treat to the environment. This yeah. should not only be in procurement. Exactly. I mean, you're absolutely so right on that. That's, that's, I mean, that's, yeah. And, and, and then you can beef up the issue of compliance. So Correct. once you have laws that require specific behaviors, then it's much easier like buyers say, you know, you cannot engage with anybody that is acting illegally in the UK. It's not about whether they're doing something mm -hmm. illegal in another jurisdiction about whether they are breaching a domestic statute that the public sector should know and should be in a position to scrutinize and enforce. So, so basically just conceding that dealing with the problems across the economy is too complicated. So we will just do it in the little small bit that we pay for because it's, it's such big numbers in, the, in terms of the volume mm -hmm. that, that it's going to look like we're doing a lot. But actually, we're only tackling for whichever problem is it that we have identified. I mean, that reminds me um, a brainwave I had a few years ago when I, I was contacted by someone uh, that was campaigning for making tax fair and getting companies to pay their fair tax, uh, share of tax. And my reply was very simple. I mean, there's no such thing as a fair share of tax. There's a legal amount that you need to pay, and that's it. And especially if you think about that here in the UK, directors in the company have a fiduciary duty towards the company, which includes reduce the amount of tax that they pay to the minimum legally uh, required, you just need to take, change the tax law. But for that, you need to take that, uh, 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 you need to spend that political capital in changing that law. Uh, instead of trying to, uh, you know, score the political point by saying, oh, it's going to be done in procurement or should be done in procurement. No, procurement is a means to an end, which is to buy something that is necessary to deliver a public service or a public good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, and I, I think that's 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 one of the issues that that comes across most of the, if you want more normatively charged proposals in in the manifestos. I, I think it's it's and, and this is something again very problematic. But when 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 I have been saying in the past, procurement is not the tool to prevent human rights violations, right? Because it's mm -hmm. it's a very poor tool. It's very difficult for a public buyer in a city council to try to monitor whether there's been human rights violations in a different jurisdiction, in things that are happening in a different language. Then basically the reaction is always, oh, so you concede that public procurement can take place by violating human rights. <laughs> well, and, and the answer is always yes and no. Yeah. You know, yes in the short term, but no in the sense that there should be much more investment and we should be taking much more seriously the human rights protective frameworks, right? It just, it, so, so that's, that's the only thing I'm saying, that, that 
for me here, when, when I read things like um, we're going to uh, enforce uh, paying fair wages and fair taxes through procurement, well, that, that means nothing because, you know, if you think about big tech or if you think about Amazon, they have tiny amounts of business with the public sector in the UK. So they will just not care. They will mm -hmm. just ignore it. So, so the big problems will not change. And on the other hand, we're going to be making things really, really difficult for those people on the front line of procurement that, that are given such a big list of things they have to control. But I think in the end, you know, it's either or just not doing it. So, so I, I, I don't know. I, I find these are probably very ineffective proposals. That's, that's my, my sense of it. And, and same thing with the issues about uh, outsourcing more generally. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's not said how we're going to improve the public services that we want to reinsource or how we're going to improve the PFIs that we want to reinsource. And, and, and that's, that's the difficulty that the how is not obvious. So, so if you haven't figured out the how, then, then probably you shouldn't be promising anything in the manifesto because you're just setting yourself to fail or you're just saying it just because you have to say it, but then, then it's clear you will not implement anything. But I think it goes back to what you mentioned before, which is it looks good in the manifesto. It makes people feel good. It gives the veneer or the appearance that something is being done without, actu without actually changing anything substantive. Um, and that is problematic. I mean, at least you can imagine that, you know, uh, nationalizing uh, open reach or the, the, the BT arm that is responsible for, for fiber and cables, that will, that is obvious how it's done, or at least how, uh, what's going to be the direct impact, but the indirect impacts are never going to be, going to be known. But overall, when you look at the manifestos in terms of procurement, what we see is this wooliness of trying, okay, let's try and achieve this and achieve that without realizing that to actually um, achieve the goal that is being proposed would need a lot more than what, is, what, what people are being led to believe. And that, I think, is very problematic because you either set up people to fail or you set up people to lie about so that they can say that, well, I, I've achieved this goal because I've ticked the box. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 there's some issues that are actually quite um, quite observable, in particularly in the in the labor manifesto. So, if we think about, for instance, the support for um, they, they they want to the support, support for uh, British steel, yeah, for for steel, yeah. yeah. So, so they want to support British steel, but they also want to make it electrical made. So, <laughs> so that sort of implies a change in the um, in, in in the energy um, approach of the of the industry. Um, I mean, th this is something that, to my mind, could probably but should be done through state aid, right? Yes. R rather than through procurement. And, and that's one thing. The other thing is you can do lots of things through procurement in terms of sustainability that could have the effect of actually protecting your local industries if that's the most environmentally sensible approach. So if, if you know, transporting steel must be terribly... Uh, bad for the environment because it's a very bulky, very heavy material. So probably buying from closer to you will always be better from the environmental perspective. Mm -hmm. that, that doesn't mean that the UK has to set out to explicitly buy British steel. Mm -hmm. What it should say is I'm going <laughs> to develop a proper life cycle costing methodology for buying steel and other construction materials and I'm going to apply it properly. Exactly. That's what they should be saying. So let, and it probably will result in, in, in more British purchases. So let's move on to the to the first topic because I think it's connected with that, which is 
Um, I think you're absolutely right. It is one thing to to say, well, let's have a proper lifecycle analysis tool and methodology that can be uh, used fairly. Because if you do that, then uh, if you have more efficient um, furnaces here in in the UK or in in continental Europe, then you're actually promoting the environment and and getting it to um, actually you, you're buying in a way that fosters that development because everyone else will have to start playing that game. So you can say, look, we're not going to buy, uh, you know, you don't say directly, you're not going to buy, uh, let's say, steel from Poland or steel from China because they, it's done mostly with uh, um, with. Uh, with coal, but uh, we found new ways and there's other ways in terms of producing steel that are less damaging for the environment, which happen to occur here in the UK or closer to home. And the the money will go, will flow to the to the best players in the market. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Um, yeah, but, but for, for that, you, you don't need to change anything in the rules. The, the only thing you need to do is to actually, um, you know, again, beef up your public buying capacity so that you can have these policies in place and they work. Actually, there is a buy British uh, public policy notice mm -hmm. uh, issued by the Conservative government, not the last one, but the previous one. Mm -hmm. it, it simply says that. It simply says, well, we're going to take into account um, the environmental considerations. So, so, so that can be done. Now, the, the problem is also what comes with it, because just to talk a little bit about the Lib Dems, because mm -hmm. we, we have largely been ignoring them because they, they don't say that much about procurement. Actually, green procurement is, is the, the one thing that they actually mention. It is. Uh, other, than, other than the prompt payments. And, mm -hmm. and, but, but there's one bit that I found interesting that says we're going to introduce a national food strategy in procurement policy mm -hmm. so that we promote the production and consumption of healthy, sustainable, and affordable food and cut down on food waste. Sure, but you know, if, if we are going to be serious about this, and this is not only a public sector, it's everybody else, mm -hmm. then we're going to have to change massively the way we eat. You know, we, we will not be eating strawberries throughout the year or maybe Agreed. ever. You know, we, we will be eating lots more cabbage. Um, and and, and I think, leeks. And, and leek, lots of leek. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I think we, we need to be also clear if we are putting something in a manifesto about what are the implications of this so that then we don't have, you know, uh, an advertent, public reactions that, 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 that because the public couldn't anticipate the actual impacts of this. You know, if, if you're going to buy things that are more environmentally friendly and, and greener, usually what's going to happen is this is going to be more expensive procurement. Mm -hmm. And it also, it constrains significantly the, the, the range of options that you have. So, so that also means that we will have to be uh, getting used to doing things a little bit differently um, in many different ways. I mean, there's, there's things that, that we can feel, for instance, at the universities. I'm sure that, that you have seen um, this uh, development in Denmark where uh, CBS, a university mm -hmm. we both know, uh, prohibited uh, short-range flights, mm -hmm. saying if, if, you, you know, if within how many hours you can go back and forth to a destination, then you're taking the train, you're not flying. That's, that's also a procurement policy that is, is about to be green, which is about reducing consumption of very um, polluting services. That's, that's not something that's going to be easy to implement, whoever promo is promising it, and, and however much goodwill. So, so that's, that's the other thing that I find lacks a little bit in, in all of the manifestos, which is all of them want to present the party as doing the right thing, as, as, as in you know, catering to the, to the 
increased awareness of, of social inequality, environmental disaster, and other issues. And, and of course, they have to be doing something about it. But what I haven't seen in any manifesto, and even if this is going to be very difficult, we will keep doing it. And our plans are not for the next legislation, but our plans for the next 20 years. You know, I, I, I don't see any manifestos linked to the sustainable development goals very explicitly and how no. this is going to support it. I, I don't see them making very long-term commitments. And, and I, I don't think this is uh, something they can brush aside saying, oh, but, the, you know, it's parliament cannot bind the next parliament. None of them are talking about law. They are talking about policy. And their and, own and, policy. And their own policy. And I think this is all very short-termist. And, and because the short-term, basically, I think they will try to score points, whoever gets elected or whoever gets to implement policy, saying, I promised it and I've done it without ever looking at the effects down the line or, or without ever really looking at, at the downside of some of these policies. And, and in procurement, this is something that um, could be quite, quite interesting to see. I mean, you know, food uh, for schools and hospitals can become much less interesting and varied than it is now if you take it very seriously to do it sustainable. And, and, and probably we should, but then we, we cannot at the same time be promising people they will have um, better food when they are um, under the care of the NHS or, or, or for kids in schools, um, because that's going to be a challenge if, if we're going to do it with, with the smallest carbon footprint we can. So, so you know, that's, that's my sort of um, long rant about, about this point. <laughs> well, I've got, <clears throat> I've got something to say about uh, the Leave Dams National Food Strategy. I mean, at least in this context, they are a little bit more... Uh, holistic than, let's say, the Labour and the Conservatives, because they recognize that public procurement policy is one part of the angle that needs to be tackled. So it's not just uh, procurement policy. So it's including the use of procurement policy. So they recognize that it will have to go beyond that. Uh, and that, I think, it's, um, it's something that we should be happy about. But as, you, as, you, as you've mentioned, at the same time, there's no indication of the trade-offs that is implied, which is certainly more expensive for the most part and surely it will mean two difficult choices in terms of you having less to choose from than than you have now because you're going to be a lot more restricted in terms of what what you consume in any given uh moment or month of the year or whatever whatever that might me might mean but at the at the same time neither of the other parties is providing us with uh with that more long-term approach which is okay long term we're going to do this even the labor manifesto you look at it and say okay uh, for the most part what seems that labor is trying to achieve is roll back uh, time to a time where more services were provided by the by the public sector uh, more stuff was done in-house instead of thinking okay what is the best way going forward it might actually be i mean as, as we've mentioned uh bringing back some uh, some uh, some things in-house but there's not much in terms of long-term objectives or uh, or the future or changing towards the future i mean there is one mentioned that they they want to require all uk trade agreements to be consistent with international humanitarian humanitarian law that's fine but there's no connection with the 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 development goals um also they say that they don't want to grant uh, procurement contacts to companies that are complicit in serious human rights abuses and that is a red herring because you already have that legislation in place so that already exists today uh, so even this that should be or would be an area that where i would expect labor to be more ambitious 
it's not tying itself down. And that, I think, is, um, is a key message that I'm taking from these three manifestos in terms of procurement, is they don't want to be tied down directly, especially on the long term. Yeah, no, I, I think um, the, 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 the two points that you were raising, so one is basically what they are saying they want to do mm-hmm. could already be done now, mm-hmm. largely, with, with the, the rules that we have. So on the one hand, that's reassuring in the sense that we probably wouldn't need to expect much procurement regulation change, whoever gets elected, if they stick to the manifestos. But then, as we were saying before, they, they, they don't say how they're going to get this done because that requires a lot of resource and that requires long-term strategies and impacts. And that's the second bit. No, all of this, all, all of this is about, as you were saying, either taking things back to how they were done before, which, which can be appealing to some, some voters, mm-hmm. or just saying things that are very much in the, for the short run. So, so sort of short fixes for small problems. I mean, one of the things, for instance, that I, that I found interesting in the Lib Dems manifesto, but I don't think it's, it's necessarily linked to procurement, is the issue about um, discussion on, on algorithms and AI. They, they mm-hmm. do have stuff on access to data, access to algorithms, stopping specific uses by the police and, and, and looking at issues around the gig economy. Um, I, I find that, that that's what I would like much more in terms of procurement across the manifestos. So for instance, we, we have big issues now, as you know, about the, the transparency of procurement data, how we use it, and, and we have issues about how to implement AI in procurement to improve planning and to improve other things. None of them are actually explicitly, as far as I see, considering these issues. And none of them talk about how they, they would want to harness that to change the public sector. They, they all talk about how they would like to use public sector money to support private sector innovation. Mm-hmm. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of thinking into public sector internal or led innovation. And that's, that, that's what I think, again, I, they, they, they could probably be bolder and saying, you know, we're going to invest so much in the public service trying to get things better, you know, um, and, and, and that could have loads of effects around, along the lines they want, because as I, as I was saying, the, the, the rules are there, just we either don't have the info or we don't have the workforce to do it under current conditions. Yeah, I mean, as the saying goes, a bad carpenter blames his tools. So it's easier to complain about the processes and the rules than actually say, okay, there is a lot that I can do within the current framework. And surely I would advocate to a more um, open or uh, ambitious way to... uh, to use the space that the rules already provide us instead of trying to change them. Obviously, if you say that you need to change the rules, what you're buying is time. You're saying, well, I cannot do this today. Now, if you change the rules, I'm going to be able to do it in the future. And you push the solv- uh, solving the problem or taking those um, those attitudes that you should be taking, you push them backwards. You're not held accountable today when you could actually be doing things differently. And that is something that we see on a, let's say, day-to-day basis in terms of how procurement is done. But surely that is also what we're seeing here in, to a certain extent within the, the, the manifestos, which is saying, okay, we want to do things differently, but at the same time, especially for labor and, and conservatives, but also the Lib Dems because they've also been in power, you've already been in power not that long ago or you're in power today, so you could have been doing different things differently today already. So why didn't you do them? It's not because you actually need to change the rules. You're just passing down the bucket, just pushing, kicking the can down the road 
for the next parliament and then the one after and then the one after and saying, well, it's a problem of the rules. We need to change the rules. Not necessarily. Yeah. Well, I think that fairness, that there's one issue that we also should not be um, overlooking, which is the complexity of all these things, right? So, True. so in the end, the manifestos and, and our discussion, I think, reflects the fact that somehow the perfect procurement could be achieved, right? So we could have <laughs> mentally friendly, uh, socially responsible, human rights supportive, innovation supportive, um, enhancing public delivery, reduction of cost, and, and, and forward-looking future-proofness, yeah, yeah. all, of, all of it and all of it at the same time. I, I just think that's not realistic. So I no, think of course not. That's, that's, that's the other issue that, that I think is, is problematic with procurement, that it's, um, we, we are sort of becoming a bit Americanized in the sense that every time there is an issue, then we want to create specific rules to tackle the issue mm-hmm. rather than accepting that, that that was the result of, of a specific structure and that what we need to do is look at the structure, not, not the, creating a specific rule. Right. So um, I, I think that, that what, what I would like to say is in the end, I mean, I'm, I'm not a big believer of of trying to create systems for the professionalization of procurement, because I think mm-hmm. it's, it's very tricky and it's very interdisciplinary. But but if I were to have something to say in one manifesto, I would say what I would like to see is two very clear commitments, one into how many more public buyers we're going to train and recruit and how we're going to scale up those that we already have in place. That's one. And the second one is how much we're going to spend and how in developing AI for the public sector, be it mm-hmm. through the Turing Institute or, or any other existing institution. So, so those are the two gaps that I see in all of this. And in the end, they boil down to professionalization and, and, and capacity to deal with very complex, impossible to get always fully right procurement. I, I agree with you. And in at the same time, is okay. Actually, which skills you're gonna upskill those uh, procurers on? Because it's not only upskilling them in this in, in in the way that procurement is being done to date. It's actually you need to upskill them and keep and keep them up to date as time goes on because things change. And that is a fundamental problem. So I don't think that, for example, setting up a well, we're going to spend a, a few billion in updating or upskilling uh, procurers today would actually solve the problem. It would improve the problem in the short term, but in the long term with attrition, with the evolution and, and so on. I mean, you'd be back to the same place if you don't put the resources constantly into that into that process. It's not that we want you know money to be spent in procurement because we like money to be spent in procurement. No, I personally I don't have an interest in that. But I know that the current approach leads to worse outcomes because you've got suppliers, uh, sorry, you've got procurers on a day-to-day basis that are overworked and may not have the right skills because they don't have the time, they don't have the inclination or the incentives or the money to to get them, and you want to achieve more with with that critical mass even then. No, I mean that is one of the let's say uh, one of the key the key chokeholds of the system, which is there's not much money being invested in that particular area of uh, of, of procurement, and that includes not only the procurement process itself, but also the the process that leads to the initiation of the procedure, which is how do you decide what you're going to buy and what exactly do you want to buy, and then as I've mentioned earlier which is the other side of, of, of the pipeline, which is the, the, the end, the contract management. So we need to have proper contract management because otherwise you may have 
the best uh, people at, at the beginning that you can have access to. You may have the best people that you can have access to in terms of managing the procedure, and the outcome will still not be as good as it, as it could be because you have you have ignored the last the last leg of the race. Yeah, I agree. Um, just before we go, yep. we haven't said much about the NHS okay. uh, proposals. I think that the the only one that is worth mentioning here is, is the one that Labour puts forward, which is basically the um, suppression of the NHS internal market mm -hmm. and, and not, not, not allowing uh, NHS contracts to be put out for uh, private delivery. Um, here, you know, just if you allow me the, the, the shameless plug, yes. this is a very complicated topic, but I am organizing an, an event uh, for the 6th of April in, in Bristol about NHS market deregulation, re-regulation or regulation. Uh, so anybody interested, you know, whoever wins the election is going to stay on the table. So um, keep out an eye uh, for announcements on my Twitter or, or on, mm -hmm. on the Bristol University website. Okay. Um... I think that is a, a great way to, to finish, finish this uh, one-off podcast dedicated to the general election 2019. Um, I hope that in 2020 I'll have more time and uh, interest and uh, incentives as well to, to keep the podcast going. So if that happens, you know, keep track of me on, on Twitter and also on, uh, on, my, on my blog. So my Twitter handle is at detic, D-E-T-I-G. And my blog is teles.eu, T-E-L-L-E-S.eu. And you can be found where, Albert? Well, I'm on Twitter at the very easy handle, A. Sanchez Graels. <laughs> Hopefully people <laughs> can Google me. Or uh, perhaps easier through my blog, howtocrackanut.com. And Pedro, I really hope that you, you reignite the podcast um, because I, I keep hearing from people that they, they meet your installments. Uh, yeah. So I hope you, you find a way for 2020. So do I. Thank you very much. And let's hope that we can resume these conversations in procurement in the near future.